morning, everybody. All right, so in answer to Daddy's question, uh, how far will we get, uh, the answer is not as far as I intended. Uh, no matter how far I go, it will not be as far as I intended. Uh, we are in Ephesians 5, and uh, we'll jump on in. Uh, we kind of wrapped up the latter part of a section, uh, I guess beginning in verse 15 and on following uh, last time. So we'll uh, pick up a little bit there, uh, mainly actually in, in verse 18. Um, just a, a couple of uh, preamble remarks, and that is, um, you know, as we've gone through our, our teachings, uh, Daddy and I have tried to point out those times when we would encounter key passages that would talk about a particular topic um, that might represent um, an important uh, core teaching about a particular topic, and we've kind of highlighted this so that you can kind of uh, remember those things. Uh, you know, he mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, table of, uh, sort of contents, uh, the Ten Commandments. I don't know how that got scrambled in my brain. Uh, the Ten Commandments uh, in Exodus 20, um, we've looked at spiritual gifts um, in Romans 12, and then more recently in Ephesians 4. Um, on Easter, we looked at the resurrection, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, those those key passages, and today we'll look at one. Um, if, if, if you want to think about one of the core areas of teaching on what the Christian marriage is like, and if you want to argue for perhaps the most important passage on Christian marriage, um, Ephesians 5 should come to mind, especially the latter part of the chapter, which we'll talk about uh, today. Now, I would not argue if someone wanted to put up... Uh, the first few chapters in Genesis um, as an argument uh, for an important chapter on marriage because that talks about how it was that God originally intended it. And uh, that's certainly some very core foundational teaching. I, I wouldn't quibble too much with that, but I would argue that for the practical side of things, it would be hard to uh, uh, not put Ephesians 5 at the top of your list. Uh, you'll see as we go through that there are... Um, very uh, similar sounding and very complementary passages uh, in Colossians uh, chapter 3 and in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. So as you want to cluster those big chunks of scripture in your mind, uh, it's not a bad way to, to do that. As, you know, because um, we don't have to always be able to quote chapter and verse, especially when most of us have a copy of the scripture on our smartphones. Um, but knowing where to look is a, is a good start. So if you, if you just say, okay, my coworker has a question on marriage, you're going to have a good shot at getting an answer in Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3 or 1 Peter uh, 3. Um, so uh, with that uh, kind of preamble, we'll jump on in. Well, maybe one more. <laughs> um, there are several times in Ephesians when... Paul talks about mystery, and including in this passage. And I think uh, when you're talking about marriage, especially Christian marriages, uh, you probably can't have enough qualifiers because it's such a, um, a rich topic, but also uh, uh, topics very close to, to all of us. And uh, as, tall, as Paul talks about some of the ideal situation, um, immediately our minds go to those situations that are not ideal. And so there is a lot of mystery here. And, and um, in chapter 1, um, 
verse 9, he talks about making known to us the mystery of his will. And certainly we'll be looking at uh, what is God's will in this area. And in chapter 3, in verse 3, he says, this mystery was known to be by revelation. And of course, he's been talking about the gospel and its big point. But if you skip on down toward the end of chapter 5, um, I think he even kind of overwhelms himself. Genesis in verse 31, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Um, I almost would paraphrase and say, you know, I don't understand it all either, but it has something to do with Jesus and the church, and, and it's a mystery. I mean, I don't think that's too far a paraphrase there um, uh, with, uh, with due deference to perhaps some revelation he received that, that we don't have access to. But um, uh, certainly I approach this passage with a fair amount of humility, and um, uh, there have been huge, huge chunks of teaching about this. I had thought about uh, trying to take it all the way through the end of the chapter. I think we'll probably get as far as uh, verse 24, maybe. All right, so verse 18. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is the key phrase. If we look at this one verse, it really sets up everything. There are two commands here, right? Don't get drunk and be filled with the Spirit. And I think that um, in terms of priority, the be filled with the Spirit part is definitely his main point. I think he makes a, you know, he's kind of a play on words there. Um, don't be filled with this, instead be filled with this. And kind of, he gets in his point about uh, not getting drunk, which is a very valid point. But the key is be filled with the Spirit. One commentator says, this is the number one imperative in all of Paul's writing. I had never really had it called out like that before, but I said, okay, maybe I should underline that one. Be filled with the Spirit as the most important command in all of Paul's writing? Really? That's huge. That is huge. So there are two commands there. Don't get drunk and be filled with the Spirit. So the key idea... As I go through things today, as Daddy picks up next week, sorry, Dad, uh, <laughs> um, is be filled with the Spirit. And everything else that we're going to talk about is simply Paul giving you an illustration of what being filled with the Spirit looks like in this setting. Okay? So, this is a section, if we look at the verses 19, 20, and 21... Very few translations get it right from a grammar standpoint. All right. I, I know uh, some of you know um, what participles are. There are five participles here. These are the ing words, right? For those of us that are not English majors, these are the ing words that can be used as adverbs and so forth to, to describe things, sometimes adverbs. It says, be filled with the Spirit. Here's your list of what that looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody, singing and making. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What most translations miss is they don't put submitting and you lose that connection with the whole rest of the thing. So what does a person that's filled with the Spirit look like? Well, they're singing, they're making melody, they're thankful, they are submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. So the submitting part isn't a command. We'll get to that. But the big theme here is that this is just this is just what a person being filled with the Spirit looks like. They're a submitting kind of person. All right? You kind of get the, the tone there. So I think one, one thing that, you know, you can, uh, sometimes scriptures like statistics. You can sometimes try to make it sound whatever you want it to say. Um, some people have um, tried to use some of the language that we're going to cover in a very authoritative sense in a, in a bad way and have accused Paul of being chauvinistic and worse. Um, some people have gone the other way and said, it doesn't mean what it says it means. Um, but what they miss is this, this mutuality of what's going on, the submitting to each other, and that it's an outgrowth of being filled with the Spirit. So that's the big idea. Submitting to one another. Um, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, when we submit to one another, it's an act of worship in a way. When you, on the basis of looking out for the betterment of the other person, if you let your rights take a back seat, that's an act of worship. Puts a different slant on things, right? You know, nowadays we always want to assert our rights. I've got a right to this. I've got a right to that. The person who says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off that a little bit out of deference to you, uh, to be a little humble, God notices that. He counts that as worship. All right, so verse 22. I'll just read the whole section here. Three verses. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Yeah, so if you, if, uh, you were an authoritative guy and wanted some scripture to put your wife in her place, uh, you could use this. It'd be wrong to do that, and it would certainly not be in context to do that. But you could do it, and if you took it out of context and twisted it just a little bit, you could make it say what you wanted it to say, and, and this has been done. This has been done a lot. And, you know, the pendulum just swings back and forth, and we're going to try to shoot for some middle ground and, and try to catch the spirit of what Paul really has in mind for us. Uh, again... Um, uh, Dad's mentioned, you know, the, the subtle differences between translations. I use the uh, English Standard Version, which gets it right on the participles, but I don't think any of the major translations get it right on verse 22. What the Greek really says, and if you continue the thought from verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, 
to your husbands. The word submit isn't there. They borrow it from verse 22. In fact, many translations will put a little footnote there to that effect. Um, Now, submit is explicitly there in verse 24, so the the concept is generally there, and they put it there for completeness. But again, I think you, you lose a little bit of the flow where Paul is truly using this as an application, like any good pastor. Here's the core teaching, be filled with the Spirit. And one of the results of that, one of the manifestations of being filled with the Spirit, is that you're going to be submitting to each other, wives, to your husbands. Okay, He doesn't even have to re-say it because the thought's already there. He's just continuing what he, what he says. So, uh, that's the flow there. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, this is another phrase that's been twisted, right? What do you do to God? You know, you'd take off your shoes and bow down and, you know, uh, prostrate yourselves. Paul's not saying that wives have to do that to their husbands. But this is more the flavor of, with a similar attitude. Um, Paul uses a similar language In Colossians 3.23, he says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. In other words, if you're working, work as to the Lord. If you're serving in church, you know, when you're changing diapers, you know, you don't change the Lord's diapers. You're changing that kid's diaper with the same attitude that, you know, this is a way of me expressing my Uh, uh, connection to what God's will is for me at this moment. And that's kind of the attitude um, that wives should have, that that when you're submitting to your husbands as to the Lord, that is with this kind of same attitude that this is a way that I can honor God by honoring my husband. Pretty straightforward when you look at it with the right tone. Again, it's one of the things that could be twisted if you weren't careful. Moving on to the next landmine, uh, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even that Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So there are um, a lot of people that don't like this verse, for the husband is the head of the wife. Uh, Again, um, uh, the pendulum swings back and forth, right? So there was a lot of um, uh, domineering uh, maybe a few generations ago, and um, the women's liberation feminism type movement would take umbrage with language like this. What do you mean the husband is the head of the wife? You know, what, what about equality and that sort of thing? Um, one commentator says, all kinds of exegetical gymnastics have been attempted in order to try to vitiate this passage, but here it is, headship involves authority. This authority is not given to exercise tyranny, but leadership. The husband is responsible for the leadership of the home. He is accountable to God for how the home is managed and how the affairs of the home are conducted. The head of the wife. Um, Again, uh, some people would be bothered by that, and they would say, well, head doesn't mean authority. Head means, they say, well, sometimes in ancient writings, when they would use this word for head, it would mean source. 
like if you said um, the head of a river, you talk the, the source of that river. And they say, well, you know, maybe Paul meant the source of a woman. Um, maybe trying to echo uh, the creation story where a woman came out of man. Um, it may be that sometimes it says that, or that sometimes head means source, but mostly, 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 head has something to do with authority. Um, growing up, and I didn't know any better, um, there was this word that was occasionally used down in Louisiana, or at least in Kentwood, Louisiana, the word thin. Uh, do you know what the word thin means? What does it mean? Hmm? Skinny. Thin. Means thin. It's skinny, not thick, right? It means thin. But occasionally, in Kentwood, Louisiana, thin meant frustrating. Meant what? Frustrating. Frustrating? Frustrating. Now, I know you might not realize thin can sometimes mean frustrating, but something exasperating would happen, and Dad would say, that was thin to me. I know that sounds odd. But that actually makes sense to me because I grew up hearing that. Not a lot, but perhaps occasionally. That was thin to me. Okay. But thin usually means skinny, usually means frustrating. Except rarely in certain backwards parts of Louisiana. <laughs> well, mostly head has something to do with authority. Okay, now I know there are people who wish it didn't, but it, it does. And, and if there was any doubt, uh, if you want to march on over to another verse that some people don't like, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Um, chapter, um, verse 3, it says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, I'm purposefully ignoring a lot of the verses before and after that because that's a whole other topic. But the point is, in this chapter, when it says the husband is the head of the wife, it does have something to do with authority. And as this commentator I quoted, I think rightly says, it kind of has to do with responsibility. Okay? So... There are some people that the responsible thing in that particular marriage might be for the husband to manage the checkbook. But there are many marriages where the responsible thing for the husband to do is to let the wife manage the checkbook and just get an allowance. Okay? So there are lots of different ways that leadership can be handled and responsibility can be handled in a way that properly recognizes the... Um, the value of, of both parts of the marriage. Tim? Isn't a man to be judged stronger than a woman as far as their household? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by judge? When you go before God, you're going to be judged because the man is supposed to be the head. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad or anything, but the man is, in the Bible, supposed to be the head of the household. And he's going to be judged stronger than the woman as far as things that goes on in the household. Is that not correct? I will leave it to God as to... <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I, I understand what you're saying, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to comment on that. Um, truly, that is, you know, that mystery thing I started with. I would kind of carefully tuck that under the, the mystery <laughs> preamble I gave. But there is a certain amount of responsibility, right? And I think properly so. And there is precedent in Scripture. If I was going to put on my attorney hat, which I'm not an attorney, when Paul starts talking about original sin, when we went through Romans, right? We talked about the first Adam and the second Adam. And that there was original sin because of the first Adam, and Christ was the second Adam, is going to help us deal with that. He didn't quote original sin because of Eve, even though she was, from a time standpoint, first. Right? But there was, in some way, greater responsibility, and you might say greater judgment in that way. But I'll leave the rest. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, you got a, a man, Right. Then it's the way discussion more than fussing of what's right and what's right. wrong. But I mean, they're like. I would put it this way. Me and my wife, I, I mean, we talk about it, but I, I, I have the last say because she lets she allows me to do that. You know what I'm saying? Now, notice she's not here. No. Well, no. We got. That's why I, I'm trying to be really careful right. with our with our language, right? Yeah. We all have we all have things that we're responsible to God for, right? And there are clearly some times when when yes, I think the the qualified answer to your question is probably yes. But I don't, I'm not sure it's, it's a difference in degree, a judged harsher, but just different, okay? I think we, each of our responsibilities are going to be judged on their own. You know, I'm not responsible for things I'm not responsible for, right? The things I'm responsible for, I'm very responsible for, you know, so... How much and all that, I think that the notion, the concept that you have is, is accurate. I think it's just an area that I, we need to be cautious taking it too far. Well, that would be that would be a nice retort. It wouldn't be scriptural, but it would be a nice retort. So we'll talk about that in a second. No. Right. So we pretty much equal, but I mean, as far as like 
if a, a certain something, most of, a lot of times, she'll ask me, and then we will make the decision. Right. But, I mean, so this is, what I, this is what I was trying to get at. How this mutual submission, right? Remember how we started. We started with being filled with the Spirit. Then we talked about mutual submission. And now we're talking about how does mutual submission look in a marriage, right? And the point is, it looks different in every marriage. Okay? It looks different to every marriage. And it would be very inappropriate for me to look at somebody else's marriage without knowing a whole lot about it and without a lot of fear and trembling to make any judgments about how they choose to be mutually submissive to each other as they both relate to God, right? So within the confines of marriage, how, the, how that oneness looks could be very different. And I think that's a testimony to God's grace and our giftedness and a lot of mystery. All right. Um, verse 24. You see why I bailed out on trying to cover all, all of it. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything uh, to their husbands. So wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Well, this is obviously another passage that could probably be improperly torqued to mean something that it doesn't necessarily say. And I think the best way I would understand that is it's not fair to have carve-outs. Okay? It's not fair to say, well, I'm going to be kind of doing the whole mutual submission thing for all of this, but, you know, there's this one part over here that I think I got this. This is my part, and... I'm not sure that this needs to be included. Okay, carve-outs. Um, in the medical world, we see carve-outs all the time. Some insurance company would say, well, we're going to cover everything, but if you have to see a counselor for depression, we're not going to cover that. We don't think that's important. Or if you need help losing weight, we don't cover weight loss help. You know, that's, we're going to carve that out. We're not going to cover that. Right? It's just a money-saving thing. But this is a place, when it says submit to everything, I think that means you don't, you don't selfishly carve out something that you're not going to mutually work through together. All right? Now, talking about attorneys, case law is all about precedent and exceptions and all that. So as we read through this, we're obviously getting what's the ideal supposed to look like. But then we always have the questions on how to apply it. Well, what if my husband is a jerk? What about that? Right? Um, well, it kind of depends on how much of a jerk. Okay? Now that's, I'm not making this up. Um, no, really. <laughs> um, Exactly. If you're both filled with the Holy Spirit, then you're not going to have any problems following God's plan, which is going back to the Garden of Eden, where they, you know, both 
tended the garden. They both did whatever else was needed to be done. Yep. And um, I think, in a, in a sense, the women's liberation movement has kind of scared a lot of guys, and rightly so, because I don't think it's biblical. Um, so, but in the flip side of that is, the, I'm kind of with him in that the husband's kind of abrogated his, well, I don't want to, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. In fact, I was going to talk about that very thing. That as this pendulum swings back and forth, you see this played out in culture. And you know, sometimes I'll be doing something at the office, and I realize, you know, my glasses are really dirty. I need to clean them. Right? The better to see whatever it is I'm looking at. We need to be really clear that we've taken our glasses and cleaned them from the cultural smudges that have maybe have been placed upon them, okay? Um, it is, I would challenge you to give me a couple of examples of, in, in modern media, of a husband who is portrayed as the leader of his home, serving his wife and ch children properly, but still taking on the appropriate authority and responsibility for what happens. Show me that guy in modern media, right? Well, it's just like Bart, when we got married, we decided, I told Ben, that I will make all the big decisions and she can have the little decisions. So far, we have had no big decisions. <laughs> <laughs> so... Here's, here's the point, and I know what John says in jest, but the, the point I'm trying to make is that modern media does not know what the concept of a responsible, thoughtful, leader, husband looks like. Almost everything is, the mom is the smartest person in the house, I'm not saying that that's not the case sometimes, the mom's the most responsible, and the husband's a joke, literally the butt of the joke. And if that's not the case, if the mom's not the smartest person in the house, the child is. Yeah. The child has all the answers, and the adults are idiots. This is, these, are the, these are the smudges that we get on our glasses as we read passages like this if we're not careful. All right? So just, Francis makes a great point here. You know, what's a guy to do? All right? So it's okay to be a guy. It's okay to be masculine. It's okay to... Um, be a guy, you don't have to apologize for that. You just need to do it right. And the flip side of this is that some guys have said, well, I don't want to be accused of being chauvinistic or bigoted, so I'm just going to take a step back and whatever she says is fine and abrogates that role of being a leader and therefore I think does have culpability to account for that. So that's part of the application of this and um, you know uh, speaking of that uh, you can't really read this and be fair to Paul if you come away thinking that he's had a chauvinistic attitude about this this is the same writer that says in Christ there's no male or female or no Jew or Greek or no slave or free this is the same guy right all those distinctions throughout life 
None of that counts as far as how you relate to God. Right? Doesn't matter where you're from, who your daddy is, it doesn't matter. All right? We're all equal, and that's the same guy who talked about this. But there's a difference between status before Christ and what your roles are within the family, and this is talking about roles and that sort of thing. One other point, just to complete this thought that I alluded to, what if your husband's a jerk? Um, you thought I was going to forget that part, right? Um, and I said it depends on how much of a jerk, right? So in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So, your husband may not even be a Christian, but if he allows you to worship Christ in a, in a, a way that uh, you can, and he sees you behaving yourself and so forth, then that's a way of serving God. And it says in Scripture that some guys have been won over to Christ in that way. Now, there is a certain point where you get to kind of a, um, a point like the apostles had when they were brought to, uh, before the judge for preaching, and they said, we have to obey God rather than men. So there's a point of justice where these verses should never be used to condone a woman staying in an abusive relationship, whether physical or, or emotional or verbal abuse. No. There's a certain point where that would not be compatible with her seeing herself as a proper creation and, and taking you know, you know, care of herself and perhaps her children. So everything's in balance here, right? But if your husband is tolerant of you going to church, then that's not grounds to leave him if, just because he's not a Christian, right? All right, I'm going to wrap up there with one final thing. There are many women here who have figured this out. It is not really my responsibility to make the younger women figure this out. It's yours. Scripture says the older women who figure this out need to be teaching the younger women. So if I've got it wrong, Fix it. <laughs> all right. Uh, if you don't have questions about how this all works in real life, then you probably weren't paying attention. <laughs> because making these three verses really sing in your marriage is what the whole process of being one is about. You know, And I, I saw a couple the other day in my office, they were in the within a few days of celebrating their 65th wedding anniversary. And I thought to myself, I'm not even halfway there. All right? So I've, I've still got time to try to make this, make this figured out. Uh, so with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can see how it's supposed to work, and we pray that with your grace and with the filling of the Holy Spirit, we can... Uh, work out these roles in ways that are honoring to you and are examples for the world. And I pray that you um, uh, convict us where we fall short of all of those areas and help us to do things that are really honoring uh, you and honoring 
our mates. In Jesus' name, amen. One resource you might want to look at, CMBW. It's the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, to show how a good way where this kind of works out in a complementary, fair way between men and women, it's a pretty good resource. Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW.org.